Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. This is the word of God. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. To you bow your heads with me in prayer? God, we thank you for your word this morning. We, uh, we thank you that uh, you've given us these two very instructive parables, and uh, we just uh, want to mine as much as we can from it uh, this morning, Father. Uh, most of all, we just hope to see Jesus, uh, our risen Savior, uh, our glorious King. Uh, help us in this endeavor, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So I, I work in uh, finance, as many of you know. One of the most interesting things to me about the world of finance is a, a part called behavioral finance. A lot of the world of kind of economics is sort of built on people making logical choices. And the fact of the matter is, people don't make logical choices quite often. Emotions play a big part in our decision making. And one of the most fascinating pieces of this behavioral finance is uh, something called cognitive biases, cognitive biases. Let me give you, it's just a fancy way, frankly, of saying that uh, because of the fall, our thinking is messed up. That's really, of course, now, uh, as a a believer, as a Christian, you are blessed, you are endowed with a biblical worldview, and so you know where to locate the fact that our thinking is messed up from time to time. That's a gift, and it is because of the fall. Let me give you a couple of examples of the cognitive Bias. One of those might be anchoring. Have you ever walked into Kohl's, let's say, and, and thought, oh my goodness, 40% off? I'm going to get a great deal. Has it ever occurred to you that the retail price, you were never meant to pay the retail price? And when they lowered that retail price by 40%, they're still making all the money that they want to make there. But you think you're getting a good deal. That's because they've anchored you to that higher price. That's an example of a cognitive bias. Another one would be a what we call confirmation bias, confirmation bias. So kind of a lighthearted example of a confirmation bias might be the fact that you still think the Broncos are good. <laughs> right? So you clearly are not taking in the data that's available to you to change your mind. There's more serious examples, of course. You could look at the Chinese Communist Party. It doesn't matter what data you put in front of them. The party rules all. Okay, there's a lot of darkness there in that. We're going to see an example of a pretty significant cognitive bias here today with the Pharisees. Today in this parable of the two sons and the parable of the treacherous tenants, we're going to see Jesus rebuke Pharisees who wouldn't 
change their minds, no matter how much data they were presented with. And we'll see him elevate those the world would never expect to be elevated because they repented and changed their minds. And we're going to answer this question of who will enter into the kingdom. So his point, I think Jesus' point is this. This is kind of my thesis, if you will, that I hope to convince you of this morning as well. God gives his kingdom to the repentant and submissive, no matter how ungodly they are. And those who do not repent and disobey condemn. They condemn themselves, no matter how righteous they appear. So let's look at the first point in your outline, the two sons. You know, last week we saw the Pharisees challenge Jesus' authority. They said, by what authority do you overturn these tables in the temple? By what authority do you teach Jesus? But here's the thing. They were not genuinely curious. They really weren't interested in how Jesus was going to answer that question. And that was because they were threatened by him. They were in power. They wanted to stay in power. And he, he had to be stopped. So it didn't matter how he answered that question. And of course, Jesus knew that it didn't matter to them how he answered that question. And so he didn't answer their question. By what authority do you do these things? Instead, he asked them about John's baptism. And they won't answer him. Right? They well, we're afraid if we say that he's a prophet, then you know, why haven't you bowed down? And if he's not a prophet, the people are going to come after us. So they cop out. No, we don't know. And then Jesus says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority do I do these things. So he follows up. So that's the context. The context for our two parables this morning and then next week, the parable of the wedding feast, is actually this question about Jesus' authority. Where is the, what's the location of Jesus' authority? Where does it come from? So with that as our background, let's look at the first parable of the two sons. Daniela read for us this morning, so I won't reread our passage there. I'll pick out certain pieces as we go forth. But I do encourage you, if you have a Bible, please keep it open. Hopefully we'll go back to that throughout our passage this morning. Now, the meaning of this parable is actually really straightforward. Unlike some of Jesus' parables where you kind of wonder, what's he getting at? Right? You know, uh, this one is pretty straightforward. He even explains it to them. Even the Pharisees knew how to answer Jesus when he asked, which of the two sons did the will of the father? Now, notice what Jesus says about the first son. He changed his mind. He changed his mind. But this is a different kind of mind-changing, if you will, than, uh, hey, I got the answer wrong on a math problem, and now I see how it's done correctly. I changed my mind. This is not a cold and calculating change of mind. This has to do with, like, really a heart change. And it actually, in the original language, there's a real sense of regret, of regret, that comes with this change of mind. So, so the first son regrets that he did not obey his father. And he changes his mind and he goes to the field to work. He had a change of heart that led to real action. And of course, in contrast, the second son had a, had a bright and cheery demeanor. I go, sir! But his words were empty. The lesson is simple. Deeds are more important than words. Jesus talked about this a lot. This is not a new concept that Jesus is bringing before these Pharisees, that his disciples are overhearing. He talks about this a lot. In fact, three times in the upper room discourse in John 14, John chapter 14, three separate times, in frankly a matter of moments, he says the same thing. In verse 15 of that, of John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Chapter, excuse me, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What he doesn't say is, tell me that you love me. Tell me that you believe me. Tell me that you trust me. He doesn't say, I'll know you love me when you are moved by a song or a sermon on Sunday morning. He doesn't say, I'll know you love me when your doctrine is squared away and you've got it all figured out. Or you've got all the right positions on the social issues. Your, your biblical worldview is airtight. Now it's been said that the church today suffers from Christians who know volumes more than they practice. But Jesus says, love me by keeping my commandments. Robert Morgan tells a story about his family's dog, Samson. So Samson was this huge Great Dane, okay? And they loved the dog, and the dog seemed to love them as well, but at every opportunity, the dog would cut loose. So they tried a dog run. He got out of the dog run. They built a fence. He jumped over the fence. He went under the fence. No matter what they seemed to do, he really wanted to get away. So they read this book on, on dog training, No Bad Dogs, No Bad Dogs. So one night, uh, uh, you know, he's uh, tucking his daughter into bed, and she had a sad expression on her face, and she said, Dad, I know now what Samson's real problem is. Let me read you this paragraph. And she proceeds to read the following paragraph from this book. Let me read this. And the author is Barbara Woodhouse. In a dog's mind, a master or a mistress to love, honor, and obey is an absolute necessity. The love is dormant in the dog until brought into full bloom by an understanding owner. Thousands of dogs appear to love their owners. They welcome them home with enthusiastic wagging of the tail and jumping up, and they follow them about their houses happily. And to the normal person seeing the dog, the affection is true and deep. But the experienced dog trainer, to the experienced dog trainer, this outward show is not enough. The true test of real love occurs when the dog can go out on its own as soon as the door is left open by mistake and it goes off and often doesn't return home for hours. That dog loves only its home comforts and the attention it gets from its family. It doesn't truly love the master or mistress as fondly as they think. True love in dogs is apparent when a door is left open and the dog still stays happily within earshot of its owner. For the owner must be the be-all and end-all of a dog's life. Morgan goes on to say, the real test of our Christianity isn't seen in our work or activity or even in our theological purity. It's found in this. When we have an opportunity to wander away, to disobey, to leave God's presence, do we choose instead to stay close to him, to abide in Christ and obey? And I warned you, the parable is simple to understand, but it is not easy to keep. Jesus, continuing there in verse 31, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Jesus does more of his upside-down kingdom stuff here. He says people like tax collectors and prostitutes are going to go into the kingdom before the righteous, upstanding people. Now, just a little bit of context for, for you on tax collectors. I think we all kind of understand that tax collectors, people 
didn't like tax collectors. They were the, the bad people kind of back then. At least that was my understanding kind of coming up through Sunday school and so forth. But let's just dig a little bit deeper. We're not in Sunday school. The tax collectors were people who were effectively traitors to their own people. See, the Romans came in and they were occupying Israel at that time. And to build all the roads, to build their aqueducts, to build you know, all the different things that Romans did, they collected tax. And what they did, though, is instead of having Romans to collect the tax, they used citizens of the country they were occupying. So in this case, they used you know, Israeli citizens to collect this tax. And the deal was, tax collector, you have to collect a certain amount, but anything above that, you can keep for yourself, right? And so that means that tax collectors, what they did was they extorted from their people, their own people. They threatened. They were a menace to their own people. They were traitors and deeply despised. That's who tax collectors were. They were awful, awful people. And of course, prostitution then as now is rarely one of choice, but one of necessity. These women had nothing. Maybe they were widows. Maybe they, who knows what their situation was. But they weren't there because they wanted to be. They were the lowest of the low. Jesus is, so Jesus is saying here, to these really upstanding people, the people that everybody in society looked up to, everybody looked up to the Pharisees. He's saying to them that the lowest and most despicable of society will get into heaven before you will. Why is that? How could he say something like that? Well, let's look at verse 32. This is what Jesus says. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You see, the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed John, which means they repented were baptized and turned from their sin. But the righteous ones, the keepers of the law, the ones who would seem most likely to receive the promises, wouldn't change their minds. It didn't matter how much data they were presented with. Even after they saw, this is really interesting to me. Jesus points out in that last half of verse 32, even when you saw it, even when you saw tax collectors and prostitutes, those who would seem the least likely deserving of salvation enter into the kingdom, you still didn't change your mind. It's as if they felt that whatever salvation the pimps and prostitutes claimed, it wasn't a salvation they needed. They didn't need that. That was for those people. They had serious confirmation bias. It didn't matter. It didn't fit their perception, so they rejected it to fit their worldview. And their worldview had them on top. Now, their view had them not needing saving or redeeming. And to admit that kind of need is to admit that they were wrong. You see, they wanted a victorious political king who would defeat the Romans, restore Israel to promise, and usher in all the promises from the Old Testament prophets. But underneath that, their heart's desire included that they would be riding his coattails to prominence, that they'd be right there along with whoever this Messiah was to be. It didn't matter that Jesus had turned water into wine, healed the legs of a paraplegic, given sight to many blind, healed many lepers, cast out demons from many possessed souls, opened the ears of the deaf, or actually raised two people from the dead. None of that mattered. It didn't matter that his teaching was arresting. Nobody taught like him with the authority that he had. It didn't matter that his manner was actually very winsome. He was humble. 
He turned their whole world upside down with pimps and prostitutes entering the kingdom before them, and they would not have that. They would only submit to a king who fit their expectation and preconceived notions. They wanted their biases confirmed. Jesus continues showing the Pharisees who they are and their perilous position they're in with another parable. So point two in your outlines, the treacherous tenants, and I will go ahead and read this for us. I do invite you, please follow along. Picking up in verse 33. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went away to another country. It's a pretty industrious guy. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. Really, everything up until now is quite normal. But the story changes trajectory quickly here in verse 35. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. This would have raised... Now, this quick comment here. This would have raised the ire of the hearers. To harass, beat, and kill someone's messenger is to do the same to the sender. But there was more. Verse 36, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Did you note right there that Jesus says, more than the first? I said, he sent three. He must have sent at least four more. We're up to seven people that he sent to these tenants, and each time they've abused them, stoned them, killed them. Verse 37, finally he sent his son to them saying, they will respect, they will respect my son. Jesus says the word finally here. The owner is down to his last resort. There's nothing left. There's no one else to send. All of his servants are gone. He only has one son. I'll send my son. They'll, they'll respect my son. Now at this point, the hearers would have thought that the story was completely ridiculous. And if you haven't come to that conclusion yourself yet as well, you should. Who in their right mind at this point wouldn't have brought in the authorities? After the first servant. And then he sent at least six more. And then he sent his son. But this owner did this over and over again. Verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. To finalize their treachery, the tenants, the tenants decided to murder the son. And it wasn't a spur-of-the-moment decision. They saw him coming. It was, this was premeditated murder. And they wanted what was rightfully his. And they said, let's kill him and keep it all for ourselves. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? The Pharisees answered him. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. In a masterful turn, Jesus asked them to conclude how the parable should end. This is actually a very typical rabbinic uh, technique that they would ask their hearers. When they were teaching, they would ask their hearers, what do you think should happen next? So Jesus as a rabbi, this is what he does. What do you think, Pharisees, should happen next? And of course, they gave the answer. And as they gave the answer, they condemned themselves. Now, verse 42, 
Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? And I love that. These were Pharisees. These were people who knew the scriptures, who spent hours, I mean literally hours a day, reading and memorizing Torah. They knew the scriptures better than anyone else. So Jesus is asking this quite sarcastically, quite facetiously. Have you never read in the scriptures? And then read what he says. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. This is a quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Continuing in verse 43, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, if you haven't figured out the answer key here, the owner of the vineyard is God, the son is Jesus, and the tenants are the Pharisees, and in a large part, the whole nation of Israel. And the servants that he sent are his prophets, the Old Testament prophets. Think about all of the Old Testament prophets that God sent to the nation of Israel. And they would repent for a little bit and then fall back to where they were before. So Jesus concludes the parable, though, by pointing to himself as the cornerstone of the new kingdom. The cornerstone, for those that need a refresher or maybe for the first time, the cornerstone is really the stone from which all of the walls, both the exterior and even the interior walls of a building, are laid true off of this one cornerstone. So this stone has to be straight too. It's got to be weighty enough to be the cornerstone as well. But the builders of the kingdom, of God's kingdom, rejected the cornerstone. It's like they were a bunch of stonemasons. And there's this huge pile of rocks in front of them. And they've got the architect's plans laid out to the side. And they know exactly what they need for a cornerstone, what the cornerstone should look like, how heavy it should be. And they're searching through this pile of stones, and they come across it, and it's like, nah, that's not the one we want. There must be one better, even though it fit all of the specifications. But this rejected stone will become the exalted stone, the cornerstone of the new kingdom. And Jesus warns that the kingdom will be taken away from God's people, Israel, and given to others who produce kingdom fruit, those who repent and believe in faith. And even worse, this cornerstone, this rock, will crush those it falls on. And anyone who falls on it will be broken apart. But what does that mean? I don't think we need to read too far into it. What he means is this. Jesus is not just Savior. Jesus is Judge. And anyone who rejects him finally, he will crush and destroy. So these are our parables. The two sons and the treacherous tenants. And I love what commentator William Hendrickson had to say about the second parable. It is a parable depicting sin most unreasonable. I'll just stop there. How unreasonable is the sin of the Pharisees? How unreasonable is it to think we'll kill the son and get to keep the, the entire vineyard for ourselves? Did they not know that the master would come and settle the score? It is a parable depicting sin most unreasonable and love incomprehensible. 
Who would send so many servants after such treachery? Who would send their own son after such treachery? Love incomprehensible. Hendrickson uh, continues, Considered in this light, this story is one of the most beautiful and touching ever told. So let's unpack that in our application. We're going to look at what, what does this tell us about the father? What does this tell us about the son? And what does this tell us about ourselves? And then we're going to answer two questions at the end. So let's look at the father. I think we've already hit on some of these things, so I won't belabor them. The father is loving. The father is loving. He sent his son, his only son. The father is patient. He sent many messengers. He sent many messengers. He is slow to anger, right? But the father is also righteous. His patience doesn't last forever. When they rejected his son, he would have no more of them. That was it. It was all over. His patient kindness toward them had expired, and he passed judgment. And I couldn't help but be reminded of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. You remember Moses in the midst of kind of all of the turmoil of leading the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. He asked God, God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. And Yahweh says, I can do that. But if I show you my front side glory, you're going to get smoked. You're going to be gone. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of this rock. And I'll pass by you. And I'll let you see my backside glory. And as God is passing before Moses. This is what he says. The Lord, the Lord. People, this is your God. Listen. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This is our God. What does this tell us about the Son? We actually talked on this theme a little bit this morning. I love how it's just not all that uncommon that our theme from the Lord's Supper just dovetails so nicely with that morning's message. And I think that's the case here as well. We talked about Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. And that took significant obedience on the part of the Son. So we see that he's obedient to the point of death. You know, we saw two sons in that first parable, and I'm sure that you were trying to read yourself into that story. I know I did. We're going to do that in a little bit here. Let's try to read Jesus in it. He's neither of those sons. He's the son that says, I go, and he went immediately, without hesitation. Right? And let's remind ourselves, his obedience, his death, his death was on a hill that he created. Nailed to wood that he was holding together at a subatomic level. Okay? At the hands of people who should have flattened themselves in his presence, in repentance and in awe. He could have called in legions upon legions of angels to defeat his accusers and tortures, but he did none of that because he was obedient. His love for his father was much more than words. 
I love Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Just hear what God has to say about his own son. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's not the end of the story. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus was obedient to the point of death. He humbled himself out of love. He was also an instrument of judgment. Jesus will give his kingdom to those who repent and believe in the gospel. But for those who reject him finally, and I just want to make a a, a small point here. Brothers and sisters, every time that we don't obey the Lord, we've, we've, we've rejected him. That's a functional rejection. Now, that's not a final rejection, but there's a functional piece of, "Mm, I know better than you, God, so I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it my way. But there there is a difference between that and a final rejection of God. And for those who reject him finally, I don't know how else to say this except to say what the scriptures say. He will crush you. You will fall on him and be destroyed. Jesus is the Savior, and we love and we should magnify Jesus for being our Savior. But let's not forget, he's our judge. And that may sound harsh, but you don't want God to kill the stuff, or don't you want, rather, God to kill the stuff that kills you? What kind of God would he be if he didn't punish sin, if he wasn't wrathful against that which destroys us? So that's a couple of observations about Jesus. Let's look at ourselves. Jesus' fundamental message is summed up in Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 15, where he says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This really is the thrust of his ministry. Forgiveness of sins, entrance into his kingdom through repentance and belief in his death and resurrection. And it comes with many Many benefits, right? Ushered into God's presence as his servants and children. Freedom from sin. There's death's defeat, eternal life, and so forth. But the thing of first importance, the number one thing, is that Christ died for our sins. And in response, we ought to repent and believe. And in this passage, we have four examples, kind of a spectrum, if you will, of responses to this gospel message. So let's look at these. You've got the tax collectors and the prostitutes. We've got the first son. We've got the second son. And we've got the tenants. Let's look at each one of these briefly. Now, from a human perspective, the tax collectors and prostitutes, as we've said before, are the least likely to inherit the kingdom. They appear to be the most sinful and least deserving, but they had the most important thing going for them. They saw their need for help. At the bottom of society, they had no one for them. They were hated and powerless And along comes Jesus saying, repent, change your mind and your ways, submit to me and enter into my kingdom. 
They had very little to lose and a lot to gain. The lesson, of course, brothers and sisters, is not to live sinfully that you might gain the kingdom. Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 6. There's no favor in their choices. The point is, only by seeing our need for a Savior can we be saved. So that's the first response to the gospel. They repented and believed immediately. The first son is our second look here at a response to the gospel. The the first son does enter the kingdom despite a bad attitude and slow obedience because ultimately he changes his mind and submits to his father's will. What's the lesson? It's never too late to obey. It's never too late to obey. You may have said no to God 10 times, 100 times, a thousand times. It is never too late to change your mind, repent of sin, and obey God. That goes for the most senior saint here to the seeker. Every single one of us. There is an opportunity to change your mind as long as it is called today. He's waiting for you. I mean, he's patient. We've seen that. He's loving. We've seen that. He is forgiving. How else could the tax collectors and prostitutes get in? Wasn't on their own merit. We know that. He made you to be with him to enjoy the joy of his countenance upon you. Have you ever thought about that? He made you to be with him. That you might enjoy the joy of his countenance upon you. And that's not because of how good you are, but because of how good he is. So that's the first son. The second son, the second son, his response to the gospel. The second son does not enter the kingdom. Despite his profession of faith and outward expressions of devotion, I go. He did not obey. His words were hollow. And through the Old Testament writers, you see God say to his people over and over and over and over again, I don't want your sacrifices and offerings. In fact, I despise your feasts and festivals. The sacrifices that I desire are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. These things I will not despise. Brothers and sisters, saying and acting without being and doing is very, very dangerous ground. That's where you find yourself this morning. Beg you, repent. It's a deceitful place that you're in. And I will tell you, it is easy to confuse emotion and outward appearance with the real thing. Now, lastly are the tenants. The tenants hated the son. The tenants killed the son. And why did they hate him? Why did they kill him? At the heart, kind of at the bottom of it, they wanted what the owner had. Does that remind you of anyone What happened in the garden? The serpent asked Adam and Eve if they wanted what was God's, knowledge of good and evil. He lied to them, saying, if they ate the fruit, quote, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve wanted what was God's. They wanted to take his place. They were not satisfied to trust him. And that's the same thing with these treacherous tenants. They wanted the owner's vineyard. Remember, they said, come, let us kill him. Let's, cut, let's kill the heir, and then we can have his inheritance. That is outright rejection. It's knowing what is right, but choosing otherwise. It's rejecting the Bible as the inspired and inerrant word of God because it's an old and outdated book on things like sexuality. And you're a modern 
intelligent person and you know better. That's what that looks like. And the question is, for us this morning, who are you now? And who do you need to be? I think many of us know of our need for a Savior. And that we're really no different, even though our outward lives may look different than the tax collectors and the prostitutes, we understand that our need is exactly the same. And we have fled to the cross for refuge for that. But if I do have one concern for this church, for our flock here, it's this. I think that some of you think you're tax collectors or prostitutes or maybe the first son, but really you're the second son. You're going through the motions, but you don't actually have a real faith. You've not actually made it your own. You've not actually acted in obedience to God. We don't follow through in obedience for the same reason we saw Adam and Eve buy into Satan's lie. So why don't we obey? It's a lack of trust. We don't think, it's, we don't think his way is best. We would rather take his position. We'd rather be God than let him be God. We forget, I love this, I heard this the other day, and it's just stuck with me. We forget whose story we're living in. We, we think this is our story. This isn't our story. This is God's story. We would rather have the kingdom than the king. We would rather have the gifts, but not the giver. That's my concern. So who do we need to be? Who do we need to be? We need to be people who submit to God's authority through repentance and faith in Jesus, which leads to obedience of his commands. It's really not complex. Hard to do, easy to understand, but hard to do. That's who we need to be. People who submit to God's authority through repentance and faith in Jesus, leading to obedience to his commands. So what do we need to do? Our last question. What do we need to do? Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe that's a hard thing for you in your life. Let me give you an example of what anger looks like, by the way. When's the last time you got annoyed at a stoplight? Maybe on the way here this morning? I mean, how often does it happen, right? And, you know... You could challenge me on this, but I would tell you annoyance is a very low-grade form of anger. And why is that? It's because you can't control that light turning red. You are not in control of your circumstance, and so you get annoyed with it. You're actually, it sounds corny, and it's just a stupid red light. You're not actually trusting God's providence that the light's red, and you're just going to sit here until it turns green. Now, that's a a silly example. I I, I know that. And obviously, it goes to much bigger things. So what do you need to do? Well, there's books that you can read on anger. There's great books on that. What about addiction? I know some of us struggle with addiction, whether it be alcohol or drugs or pornography. There's many who struggle with it. Not many, but there are some who struggle with addiction here. What can you do about that? Well, there's books. You You can see us elders to help you, to point you in the right direction for resources um, to, help, to help with that? How about pride? 
I think every, all of us struggle in one way or another with pride. There's many things that we could do. But if there's one thing that I would encourage you to do, and I've alluded to this a couple of times already this morning, and I'm, I feel pretty convicted about this. I think we love to read books about Jesus. I think we love to read books about the church. And these kind of love to read books about doctrine. And I am all for that. Those are good things. But let's not let it take the place of 30 minutes with your Bible open, a pen in your hand, and a piece of paper to write. There's nothing better that you can do for anger, anxiety, addiction, pride, insecurity, than to be with Jesus in his word in a reg- on a regular basis. That is one way that our lives could look more obedient. And so if the whole sermon could be summed up, Psalm 2, verse 12 does it well, I think. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And I know maybe this sermon has felt a little heavy on the judgment piece, so I, I just want to go back to something we've already looked at earlier, Matthew chapter 11, and remind us of who our Savior and our judge is, what he says about himself. When asked, Jesus, what do you like? This is what he says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, the one thing I haven't said yet this morning is no one here can be perfectly obedient. Only one ever has. And while he would hope and wants us to be perfect, he knows that we can't. And so he says, get in the yoke with me. Just get in the yoke with me. Take that first step with me. Be obedient in one little small thing today that you weren't obedient in yesterday. And let's just see what happens. Just get in the yoke with me. And we'll see where this goes. So to conclude, I just want to say this, this last verse from 2 Peter verses three and nine, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Are you running from him? Is there an area in your life you know he's calling you to let go of or maybe to go into? but you don't want to do it? Is there sin that you're hiding? Are you coddling sin instead of killing it? Don't test his patience by toying with sin. I mean, here's the, there's nothing to be gained, literally nothing to be gained and everything to be lost if we wait to submit. And here's the beauty. When you do submit, when you come home to your maker, he never says, His arms are not crossed. He never says, I told you so. You don't have to prove anything to him. There's nothing that you have to do to earn his affection. He doesn't hold it over his head. There's no time in purgatory where you have to prove that you're worthy. Instead, he's like the prodigal son's father, right? He gathers up his, he just like loses all sense of who he is. He gathers up his robes and he comes running down the lane to greet you. So come home. Would you stand with me in prayer? God, we thank you for 
the Lord Jesus. We thank you for uh, this word this morning. And Lord, we, we do struggle to be obedient to you. We, we do struggle from time to time um, to, to live your word as you would have us live it. Um, so we need your help. And we're so thankful that you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us in this regard. You've given us your word. Lord, help us to be people of your word um, who uh, just enjoy being with you in your word. Lord, we, uh, we ask for your grace. We need your mercy. We're no different than the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Uh, so we need your grace and mercy this day. And we need your strength. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.